Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Okay, well, let's get into our lesson for today. I put a... uh a little chart up or a table or column deal up on the, on the board for the benefit of those that are listening uh, to the podcast because it's, I didn't put it in the actual uh, outline. But what I want us to be thinking about today as we, as we work through the lesson is to think about miracles from the perspective of miracles that you see as well as miracles that you do not see. When you think in terms of how often God works miracles in life, sometimes the problem is not whether God is doing it or not. The problem is, is that there are miracles that go on outside of our awareness, or maybe we're just kind of looking for certain miracles and we don't see the breadth of the miracles that occur. And so just because we don't see them doesn't mean that they don't happen. So the question that I have kind of floating around in my head a little bit is, is that because there are miracles going on all the time, how do you shift your eyesight? How, how, what's a way, and this, we'll kind of look, look at this in the lesson for today, but how, how do you improve your sight to where you see miracles maybe that other people don't see? Or that you're adding to the awareness that you have of the, the, the amount of ways that God works in our lives through miracles. And it's just a question not of whether God does it or not, but it's a question of whether or not I am observing it or not, or giving God credit or not. Does that make sense to think about it that way? So as we kind of work through the lesson for today, I want you to kind of be thinking about that, and uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see what we can uh, learn from that. Okay, so we're in uh, John chapter 1, and uh, we're finishing up this first part here of uh, 47 to uh, 51. We, we had just started it last week. There are a couple little points that I wanted to make on that, and then we'll, uh, we'll go to the next part. So remember, this is the part of John where Jesus is, is, uh, is seeking and deliberately finding the people that he wants to have as his disciples, as his, uh, his 12 apostles, so to speak. All right? So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to them, to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. All right. So how, how uh, Nathaniel gets into the story, we remember is that Jesus went and found Philip, remember? And then Philip in turn went and found Nathaniel. Remember what Nathaniel's response was when, when Philip said, oh, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. What did Philip say? 
So Nazareth, you know, and so he was kind of a, that was a bit of a put down, you know, kind of like, well, here this, you know, crummy little town of Nazareth doesn't do anything. And here you're saying that the Messiah, the Christ, the King is coming out of Nazareth. There is no way. Well, the irony is, is that Nathaniel was from a little town called uh, Canaan. And Cana was about, oh, five miles, six miles or so from Nazareth. And we're actually going to see Cana show up in the next part of the lesson for this morning. But Cana was just as much of a crummy little town as Nazareth was. And so here you sort of have the crummy calling the crummy crummy, you know. And uh, how does that work? But that's how that works. So, so anyway, Jesus calls uh, Nathaniel and then he says of him, here is an Israelite in which there is no deceit. In other words, he's saying of Nathaniel that this is a guy, uh, what you see is what you get kind of person. That he will just say it like it is, and he will say it even if it might be a little bit rude or might be a little bit blunt in terms of the way that he says that. Is there anybody that knows anybody like that? You don't know anybody like that? Okay. There is hope for that person, Right? People who have no tact absolutely have a place in God's kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And that, and that Jesus, in fact, deliberately called Nathaniel to be his disciple, to be his apostle. So there is hope for you or whoever it is you know who might be, uh, who might be like that. Well, then, so Philip says, well, how do you know me? I mean, Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And then Jesus says, well, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, it's kind of interesting. It sort of suggests that the fig tree was not right where? Right there in front of them, right? That maybe it was around the corner or maybe it was across the street or maybe it was across a field somewhere. And Jesus says, I saw you before Philip called you. And then at that point, Nathaniel says what? He says, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel, you are the Messiah. And then notice what Jesus says, and this is kind of the, the key to, to, to uh, key on for today with respect to uh, what's up on the board. He says, you will what? You will see greater things than these. Following Jesus Christ will affect your eyesight. It will affect your perspective. It will affect the way that you, the, the weight you give to things in life. It'll affect in, in some significant way the idea that you will apply to things that happen in life the value that says this is greater than necessarily the world around us will do. So what am I talking about under point G in your outline? Following Jesus is transformative. Following Jesus does three things. Now, it may be more than three things, but there's three things that I uh, thought of. It gives trustworthy spiritual confidence even when others accuse you of being irrational in your belief. And we think here of 1 Corinthians 1, to 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. How ridiculous is that? To simply trust in Jesus 
as the power of God and the wisdom of God that that's all you really need in this life. How ridiculous is that? Have you ever tried to talk to someone who is not a believer or is someone whose life is not oriented around Jesus and following Jesus and then try to rationally explain why it is you do what you do? Have you ever tried that? What sort of challenge is that for you? What sort of challenge is that? It kind of doesn't make sense, does well, they it? They think you're totally irrational. They, they think you're irrational. You're saying that's right. It's ridiculous, and they think you're crazy. And that's right. They don't want to listen. That's right. I mean, to some degree, it is kind of mind blowing, isn't it? I mean, it really kind of doesn't make sense for us to just simply trust in the promises of God. I've, I've noticed that, for example, when it comes to attributing amazing things that happen that are out of our control, attributing that to God's power or that that miracle just occurred. When you're talking to somebody who is not oriented that way, who doesn't even consider the possibility of that, it's like you're, you're almost looking into the eyes of a skeptic. You're looking into the eyes of somebody who said, boy, you must be really off your rocker, right, for you to believe that that could be the case. And that's, in fact, what happens, and that's what he's talking about here. So, so what, what, what happens with following Jesus is, is that it gives to us spiritual confidence, which really you have to have when people are looking at you as if you are some fundamentalist nut that you would just believe in the Bible and then that would be enough. Okay? Yeah. I don't know if this falls in the line of a miracle, but has anyone ever had something happen where you're praying for guidance to do something? Yeah. And then you think, okay, let's go and do it. Then all of a sudden things start just falling into place. Right. Time and time again. And you think, maybe God meant this to be? Yeah. Yeah. What if you, may, you do the exact same thing and then things do not fall into place, but things are falling on top of you instead of falling into place? Yeah. What, what then? Yeah. See? Well, maybe I shouldn't do this. Yeah. Well, sometimes we conclude that, but sometimes, in fact, it's, it, that's still, it was still part of God's will for us to do that. It's just that what comes with it is challenges to that. What comes with it is that uh, tests or obstacles are thrown in our way. And yet what, what we're talking about here is, is that, that when you follow Jesus, the good news is, is that you know that Jesus has already walked the path for you. Jesus is already out in front of you. And not only does he not only know what the path is like for you, but he's already preparing the way for you. It's just that's a hard sell when, when Jesus didn't get all the rocks out of the way. You know, when the, when, the, when the sinkholes are still there and I fell into them, you know, I mean, that's that, 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 that feels like, uh-oh, I must have done the wrong thing. I just do not believe that if you, if you make a wise decision and you take into consideration, you know, wise, count, wise counsel and that sort of thing, that even if what you decided to do didn't quite fit in with what God's specific thing was for you to do, God fixes it. So I really lean on Romans 8.28 a lot, for we know that in all things God works for the good. See, because God's bigger than me, and he can kind of fix that for me. Might it be a little bit more challenging or difficult for me? Yes. But there's God's goodness is still there. Yeah, Peggy. Well, in most instances, don't we find where if we're 
like you say, if everything's sort of falling in place and you feel, okay, this is really what God wants me to do. Yeah. Well, Satan is working harder. He's throwing obstacles all the time in your path. Is he, is he not in many cases? He could. And then you're thinking, But okay, I wouldn't put it past God to do the same thing. Well, true. You know? <laughs> Because, see, that makes you stronger. See, if the path is so easy, how do I get stronger? How do I, how do I grow? How do I learn to adapt to or perhaps overcome and yet still have spiritual confidence in it? See, the spiritual confidence is really what comes. When you, uh, example, you look at Jesus' ministry, and we'll be doing that all through the, the book of John. You know, almost from day one, he's getting resistance. He's getting pushback. And you'd think that, well, if I'm supposed to serve Jesus, wouldn't he want to eliminate the obstacles? Wouldn't he want to do that? No, apparently not. So we can have confidence even when things are not going as smoothly as we think they ought to. And we just have to look at Jesus's life as an example. You'd think if anybody had, would have it easy, it'd be the son of God, you know, incomprehensible, right? And, and, and it wasn't, okay? We had a couple, oh yeah, Gina. Well, and when it's easy, we don't tend to lean on him. I mean, we tend, a lot of times we, it, when it's going really easy, we tend to, in our human nature, t- tend to think, you know, plot ourselves. I got this. That, you yeah. know, this is me doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm so good at what sure. I do. Whereas when we're hitting landslides and boulders mm-hmm. falling on us, then we're like, okay, God, I need your help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. Just, and that leads us kind of into the second part of this. Following Jesus gives courage and joy which is not dependent on life being predictable. So we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, it says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So we what? We walk by faith, not by sight. See, so it, that if, if it was up to us in terms of walking by sight, then quite naturally we would want life to be totally predictable totally controllable. We always know what's coming up next. And then we can be prepared for it and not be, you know, not be swamped or overwhelmed in some way. But what this is talking about is the idea that life isn't like that. Not, not in this life anyway. It's not like that. And because it's not, does that mean that, that then I'm not going to have some sense of joy in life or that I couldn't have courage? Oh, no. In fact, I can but it's again, it's because of who I'm following and who I'm following is the savior who's already walked the path for me. And then thirdly, following Jesus gives the faith to see God at work in a world or in a situation, even when others do not see it. And that great Hebrews passage there from 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, notice there's one of the one thematic word that keeps showing up here is the word see. So much of what we find security in in our lives has to do with what we see. And the troublesome aspect of that is, is that there's so much of life that goes on around us that we don't see. And so there's this sort of tension there between what you see and what you don't see. And even if what you see is troubling or is scary, for you, all right, or for us, all right? 
Does that mean then that somehow I can't still believe and trust that God is at work? When everything's falling apart, when I, when I made that decision that I made and I was absolutely sure that it was God's will for me to do this, and yet when I did it, the world turned upside down, which often happens, okay? You make your best judgment of a decision you're going to do, where you're going to work, who you're going to marry, where you're going to live, kind of all those kinds of things, okay? You do it prayerfully. You do it uh, in a mature way. It's not impulsive. It's all those things. And then it falls apart. What do you do? You have the faith through Jesus that God is still in charge. God knows what he's doing. And God will turn the bad into good. And it might take a long time for that to happen. And it doesn't help when you have people around you who are not believers or who are skeptics who are saying to you, boy, that was an idiotic thing to do, right? You know, prayer sure helped you, you know, that's hard. It's hard. But that's where we keep our eyes on Jesus and continue to strengthen that conviction that no, no, no. God, God is still here. God is still working, and I'm going to trust in him, and then let's see what, uh, see what happens. So when, uh, when Jesus says to, uh, to Nathaniel, and then is saying basically to all of us, you will see greater things than this, he sort of gives them a little taste of what greater is. And so he says, you're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now that would be something that would trigger a thought in all of their minds of one of the great Old Testament stories that probably many of us kind of remember, or at least remember the picture in the little visits with God book that many of us were raised with. All right. What is that referencing? Jacob's ladder. Remember the story. Jacob is, is fleeing Esau and he's out in the wilderness and he's running away and he's scared to death because he just ripped his brother off. Right. And, uh, and, and so he lays down at night on this stone and uh, I can still see the picture of it right there. The angels ascending and descending and the big light at the top of, uh, of, the, uh, of the ladder. All right. And so Genesis 28 picks that up. And he dreamed, that's Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending. And so then Jesus makes a reference, a phrase, a phrase reference to what's called the Son of Man. And that was a title that Jesus often used to reference himself. What's interesting is that we don't see Jesus referencing himself as the son of God. Other people would reference him as the son of God. Other people would say, you are the king of the Jews. Other people would say, you're the Messiah. All right. And Jesus was kind of um, sensitive, I think, to the timing of when people would say that. Partly because he didn't want to, to, to contribute to the misconceptions that they already had about what the Messiah was going to come to do, that the Messiah would be a, a society changer, that the Messiah would be a, a political figure, that the Messiah would be somebody who would be uh, driving the oppressive uh, Romans out of uh, Israel. 
So what Jesus does is he references himself as a son of man very often, and that also had a tie to the Old Testament. If you look on the next page, page 20, is that in Ezekiel 3 verse 4, uh, it says, and he said to me, O son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with, uh, speak my words to them. Okay. So again, there God is speaking to, to Ezekiel as one of the prophets, but that was very often one of the uh, designations that was, uh, that was made to him. And then it also recalls from Daniel, God's designation of the coming Messiah. Daniel seven thirteen to 14 says, I saw in the night visions and behold the clouds of heaven with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So again, Jesus oftentimes would reference himself using phrases and terms that pointed people back to the Old Testament. And that was the connection. Jesus was the bridge, if you will, between, uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's also, I'm, I just mentioned here, that commentators uh, often will also attribute this to the acknowledgement of Jesus' human nature, as well as the fact that he was, uh, uh, was, had divine nature as well. So again, it's just little, these kind of little nuances that show up in John that, uh, that communicate that uh, as far as who Jesus was. Okay, any thoughts about that? Yeah. Uh, another thing that, that jumped out at me is that the double truly, truly, it's yes. like he's saying, listen, listen, give me your attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's very strong. That's right. That's right. And when we say to people, truly, truly, <laughs> there it is. So pay attention. Pay attention. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Greek and Aramaic, there are certain phrases that we don't really use so much today, but that when they show up in the scripture, it's, it's, the, it's the scripture's way of saying, this is really important. So the, the three that come to mind, truly, truly is one of them, okay? When you say amen, that's another one, because amen means Uh, Let it be so as I have said, all right? And then the third one is when Jesus says, and and you'll see this, I can't remember if it's in John, but I know it's the other gospels, is where he says, let him who has ears, let him hear. And it's almost like that's that's an extra emphasis of that not only is everything he's saying important because, you know, it's Jesus saying it, but then it's also like, listen up, because this is really a pivotal, this is a really a significant thing that would be uh, of benefit to you in your life. Okay, very good. So, so truly, truly. So try that at home this week <laughs> and see if George kind of picks up on the importance of that. Well, and we'll see, we'll take a, we'll have a little survey and we'll see how that works next week. How well did that work? Okay. All right. So, so, okay. Now remember the, so here's what the, the theme is. Jesus has said to Nathaniel and to the apostles and to us, you will see greater things than this. Your eyesight will change and your perspective will change toward what you see, even if your mind says that couldn't be a, that great of a miracle. 
that can't be that big of a thing. When Jesus says you will see things greater, what will happen is, is that you will begin to attribute to God things that maybe everybody else in the world says, oh, that was just coincidence. Oh, well, that was the result of the metric study that we did. And uh, we figured out on the basis of the metrics that the probability was greater than it would happen. And lo and behold, it happened. Okay. And, and the Christians coming at it going, well, maybe so, but God. And th- there's going to be a moment when you have the opportunity to say that and people will look at you like you are nuts. And what a special moment that will be when that happens. <laughs> All right. So let's go now to the, to the next part. Chapter 2, verses 1 and following. We should celebrate the fact that we finally got out of John 1, huh? <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah, great. Okay, so let's go. One more thing. What, what? Oh, oh. Well, we were going to get out of John 1. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, the, in my study Bible here, it says um, this was the first demonstration of Jesus' knowledge, um, of that he had knowledge uh, over and above everybody else. And so often we attribute what we're going to the wedding in Cana in chapter 2, but he had already revealed himself here, and this is the first place where we could see. And I had never noticed that before, that we always think the first miracle was Cana, but he had already revealed himself prior. That's the added little benefit. Thank you. Now we can go on. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, truly, truly, right? So, so how are we going to have class without you here to do all this? You know, we have other people that have study Bibles who venture into giving insight from them, but no one quite does it like you do. And so we will miss that. If we could maybe figure out, Philip, can we figure out technology wise to have a, like a beaming from Florida and then we could just have the light, the red light comes on and uh, there's Victoria. Yeah. Well, yes, but, but graciously. Yes. Yeah. Very good. All right. Oh, that's always exciting when that happens. Yeah. Sometimes my phone isn't in my pocket and my pocket vibrates still. So that tells you what's happened uh, to my body. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anybody else having some insight to share? She stopped it. I was struck by the fact in the, in the Genesis account, it says the angels of God were ascending and descending on the ladder. Yeah. Up here it says they were ascending and descending on the Son of Man, almost yeah. like he's our ladder to heaven. Well, almost like maybe in the Old Testament, the Son of God was the one at the top of the ladder. And maybe looking ahead to Judgment Day and the throne and the whole thing. So you sort of get a sense here that Jesus has given them a little taste, just a tiny little eyedropper taste. Because remember, they're on the very beginning of their journey with him. And their lives are about to change significantly. And yet he kind of eases them into this, right? And we see that, I think, with the placement of the... uh, of the story of the wedding of Cana. You know, it, we're going to see that. That clearly is a miracle, right? Um, but it's kind of a low-key kind of thing. In fact, we don't even get some sense that the disciples even knew that it happened. It kind of was even limited to a small group of people that knew. But, but nonetheless, it was still an evidence of God's working. Okay, so let's get into that. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? I know, we'll talk about that in a second. (laughs) My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, now, wedding to Cana. So we already know a little bit about Cana, don't we? That it was a small town that was, you know, some distance away, but not uh, inordinate distance away from, uh, from Nazareth. And so it suggests that the closeness or proximity of the town suggests also that people from one town knew the others. Because who's there? Mary's there. Now, see, she, she was a, Naz, a Nazareth person, and Jesus grew up there. That was hit where Joseph's uh, carpenter shop was and all those kind of things. So Jesus would have been a, a regular there. You know, everybody knows him, that, that kind of thing. And so what happens is they have this wedding, and at the wedding, then Mar- Mary's involved and invited, and more than just invited, you sort of get the sense that she maybe has a little bit of official standing kind of thing. Maybe she was in charge of cutting the cake perhaps or something, <laughs> something like that. Okay. And, and so, and Jesus and his disciples are there too. Now we, we don't know at this point, you know, at this point he has five disciples, but you sort of get the sense that maybe there were more people than just the five, but we're not really told because John doesn't present this story in necessarily in a, a chronological way. So you don't, we don't really know. We just know this was the, the first recording of a, uh, of a miracle. So at any rate, uh, they have this, this wedding. Now, how many of you have ever gone to a small town wedding and or a small town wedding reception? How many of you ever done that? Okay, what's unique about a small town wedding and or reception? Particularly if it's German. And this was clearly a German wedding here. Let me tell you exactly. Okay. Or anything that involves some people of ethnic uh, pride. Okay. Or community pride. What, uh, what, what's what's kind of unique sometimes. Think about weddings that would go on here in uh, Plano area or in the Metroplex versus weddings that would go on, let's say, down in Dimebox, Texas, as an example. And I can give a personal testimony on that one, all right? The food and drink goes on and on. Food and drink goes on and on and on. And because that's a huge deal, if you run out of beverage, whatever the preferred beverage is, in this case, wine, if it's German, if the kegs are too small, okay? <laughs> Whatever it is, that is a huge embarrassment. And because it's in a small town where everybody not only knows everybody, but they know everybody's history for a thousand years, what story do you think will be told and retold and retold and retold about that wedding that took place, you know, a thousand years ago? What, what, what story is going to be told? What will be remembered and then repeated? No one will remember the, how wonderful the wedding was. And oh, isn't it so sweet, that couple that went to high school together, they found each other. No, what will be remembered is, is that they ran out of beverage and how embarrassing that would be. And that would have been the same thing here. Okay? So, and by the way, in a lot of small towns, particularly in central Texas, the wedding reception is a bigger deal than the wedding. So I did a number of years ago, I did a... Uh, 
a wedding down in, uh, well, the couple was from Dimebox. You know where Dimebox is? Anybody know where that? There's old Dimebox and there's new Dimebox, okay? You need to make that distinction because if you go to one thinking you're at the other, they'll laugh at you. So where Highway 21 goes from Nacogdoches in East Texas all the way from San Augustine, which is on the border, it goes all the way to San Antonio. It's the original path that the settlers took when they came through the east, and then they had to stop. They crossed over the Sabine River, and they had to stop right there and get baptized Catholic so that they could come into Texas if they wanted to own land. Okay, a little Texas history thing. And Highway 21 went right through that area, and Dimebox is right there. Old Dimebox is. There's a nice little Lutheran church there. And so the original settlers would get baptized as Catholic, and most of them were Methodist. And so they would get baptized like this. That's how they did it. James Mishner's novel, Texas, is a great... Uh, is a great resource for this. I love that book. That was really a wonderful uh, description of that. But it went right through there. And Dimebox is one of those towns that every seven miles there's a town. Now, do you know why every seven miles? Because that was a day's journey either on a wagon or horseback. So there would be these, these sort of stops along the way, and Dimebox was one of them. So anyway, this couple was from Dimebox, and, and, but the little bitty Lutheran church in Dimebox was too small, so we had to go to Rockdale. If you know where Rockdale is, then that's where we did the uh, wedding. But the wedding reception was at Dimebox, and it was in one of those Czech dance halls. You know what, you don't, you know what I'm talking about? It's like these big, these big uh, uh, buildings that has a wide open space inside and a bar. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember looking up. Um, but they had the barbecue, and they had the, the grills out there, and they had the beverages, and they had the dancing, and they had all those kinds of things. And even though probably there were only 100 people at the wedding, there were 600 people at the reception, meaning that everybody from town showed up. The Lutherans, the Catholics, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, we're all one in Christ when we go to, uh, to uh, yeah, there is great unity. Okay, so you get the sense of that. That's what's going on here. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. So what happens is they run out of wine. Now, th- some people think the reason they ran out of wine because more people showed up than they thought would be there. And that, could, that actually could have been, Okay. Or maybe there were just more thirsty people than they thought would be there, whatever the case may be. So what does Mary do? She goes to Jesus and does what? Presents the deed. That's all she does. The wine ran out, and so she goes to Jesus, and, they, and she says what? They have no wine. That was, a big, that was a big thing. Okay. Now, what does Jesus do? What does he do? He says... Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that sounds very harsh, okay? Woman, what? A little bit, you know, kind of like, you know, like, hey, you know, know your place, woman, okay? (laughs) But notice that's not what it is. It sounds harsh, but actually that address woman is, is affectionate, with respect. And how we know that is that's the exact same Greek word that he uses when Jesus is on the cross and he's dying and he says to John and to Mary, what? Says, 
a woman, behold your son. See, it, it, it's, it's an affectionate uh, term, but it comes across in English as being kind of uppity. So when I was a kid, I thought I would try this out on my mother. <laughs> and I don't remember what it was that she said I needed to do in that moment. I'm sure that she was presenting a need of some kind and wanted me to respond. And so I thought, well, good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. Well, I don't really remember the rest of the story. I think I blocked it out somehow. That's a, a gap in my memory. It probably is. All right. Um, but anyway, Jesus was able to get away with this somehow. All right. So he, that, so then he says, my hour has not yet come. The, the uh, Greek word there is aura, meaning hour. And again, what the point here is, I think, that Jesus is about to distinguish himself as what it means that he is the Savior, what it means that he is the Son of God. And even though there is a sense of urgency here on Mary's part, at least we sort of get that sense of that. We got to hurry up, Jesus, because they don't have any more wine, and that's embarrassing. Jesus is very, um, is very particular about what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. And he's not going to do it if it's just simply on the urgency of somebody else. Have you ever had that happen? Somebody comes up to you and they want their urgency to translate into your urgency and that somehow then you need to jump right now because maybe they were planning was poor or some sort of emergency just happened. And by golly, if you don't hurry up, there's, you know, you don't really like me or love me. Oh, Philip, you're raising your hand back there. As a newlywed, I would see that. Yes, go ahead. Well, not only that, but also in my work. Oh, in your I'm work. A, I'm in a support role, so I do have a lot of people that come to me with an emergency. Yes. And, a, and sometimes they, they may expect me to drop everything to help them. Even That's right. Even if I may be in the middle of something else. That's right. So now you know what to say when that happens. <laughs> my hour has not yet come. <laughs> So I would encourage you to try that and see how that works for you, uh, because if, you know, we're just uh, simply repeating what Jesus says. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm just, since the feast went on for seven days, Yeah. would be more, I mean, it, Mary might be more upset on day two than day seven. About No wine. Yeah. Unless it's toward the end, and... By then they would have run. Maybe maybe that's what it is. So we're not. See, we're not really told. Was this like day six or day five or whatever it would be? It kind of makes sense that maybe it would have been later because then that would account for why they ran out of ran out of wine. So that's very possible. Yes. Yeah. How many of you like feel a little compassion for Mary here? Anybody feel a little compassion? How many of you feel bad for Jesus that he's kind of in that uh, situation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so let's see what Mary does. Mary goes to the servants and does what? Says, do whatever he tells you. Now, I love that. I love that because she is not put off by Jesus's saying basically to her, I've got this, but I'm going to do this in my time, not in your time. 
And so we kind of really kind of get to see a little bit of the dynamic of how the relationship between Mary and Jesus would have to mature over time. And maybe to some degree, this informs us a little bit of, of just that dynamic between mothers and sons, you know, uh, uh, albeit the son of God, but still mothers and sons, and how you navigate that, okay? Because sometimes that can be a precarious thing. But Mary is not put off, nor does she try to guilt Jesus into hurrying up and doing what it is that she for good purpose and a good reason. I mean, she's not doing this to serve herself. You know, she, she really has a, a real concern for the, the people and the embarrassment and that, and that whole kind of thing. But she doesn't try to guilt him. She doesn't say, oh, now you just need to drop everything. I mean, she doesn't do that. Instead, she goes to the servants and says, okay, whatever it is that he says, do. So Mary in faith is preparing for the miracle before the miracle ever happens. So here's just some questions for you to think about this with respect to your life. I, and I've used this story a lot in, in my life. What is the need or the dream in your life that you absolutely are convicted needs a miracle? Maybe it's something that you have prayed for many, many, many years that God would work and do his miraculous thing. You're praying that God will retire you? Is that what you're praying? No? No. no. That I'll be able to. That you'll be able to. Yeah, right. Okay. So, so that's a need that you have. And sometimes with needs, the longer we hang with it, it kind of becomes dream, a dream status. You know, it's bigger than just a need. This is like, oh, a vow or whatever it is. Okay. So it's a, bigger, it's a big thing that needs a dream. Okay. So here's the next question. As you wait and pray... What preparations are you making before it happens? See, that's the interesting thing about Mary. She didn't just go, oh, okay, you're our Jesus, I get it, and go off and sit down and not do anything. She didn't go, oh, well, okay, he'll just do whenever, okay, whatever. She didn't do that. Instead, what she did was she said, here's the need, okay, his hour, whenever his hour is, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to go prepare for the miracle. And her form of preparing for the miracle was simply to do what? Tell the servants, do whatever it is. And she apparently had some standing here as a, some sort of official or somebody in the, in the wedding to be able to say that to the servants and for the servants to go, okay, yes, ma'am. And so there would have been that sort of sense of, okay, she's preparing for the miracle that's yet to be, not knowing what the miracle is. Marty. Well, some, you know, something we don't see in scriptures is we can't see the body language that's being, we're, not, we're never told about the body language. Yes. So for all she, we know, Jesus might have said that, but, but looking at her like, I got it under control. That look, I saw that look, yeah. yeah. And so that part, you know, I find it interesting that we don't know what transpired that we she would have gotten that message from him. That's right. You know, it's, it's going to happen. But to some degree, I suspect that Jesus does the same thing for us. He kind of looks at us with that look, you know, that look. He goes, I got this, you know, as if we needed reminding of that. And we did, 
Because how often do we forget it that, oh, yeah, oh, that's right, you have it, you have it, you have it, okay? So one, one of the things that, that I'd like you to maybe think about is as you think about whatever that need is or that dream is that you've been praying for, and, and, and it's, a, it, it's not a selfish need, it's, a, it's like this one. It's, it's one that maybe would be thinking about somebody else that in your life, like you've been praying, praying, praying for, for somebody in your life to find Jesus or to come back to church or to have a spiritual life or whatever it is, is that then in what way are you preparing yourself to be able to receive the miracle when it happens. And you're, it's, like, it's like the positioning that needed to occur is in place. Does that make sense to say it that way? Because sometimes I think we pray and pray and pray, and then the thing that God wants to have happen happens, and we didn't see it because our eyes weren't trained to see it, or it presented such a great challenge to us we weren't prepared for that we rejected it because we said, oh, that's too hard. Oh, that's too much. Oh, Lord, that isn't what I had in mind. And sometimes that goes back to this, what you see and what you don't see. Sometimes what we see is then what we say is this is the limit of it. We say, well... That's that uh, I, I prayed for this uh, on and on and on. And then when God gave it to me, I wasn't ready for it. And because I wasn't ready for it, I said, no, thank you. Uh, my hour has not yet come. Right, Lord. So to some degree, you, it's giving thought to what is on your part, not to make the miracle happen because God makes it happen. But what's on your part, I think, I hope I'm not being heretical in saying this, but what's on your part is that when the miracle occurs, it's like the, all the pieces fall into place and you're ready to go there so that you can, number three, be well positioned to receive it. Yeah, Kathy. Between two and three, I think. Between two and three. You, you're saying receive it doesn't mean that it gets granted. It just means that you receive the answer. Yes. Promised. Yes. You're going to get the answer you want. That's correct. I I think that that's part of the shaping of our eyesight. It's because I think sometimes when we walk by sight, we try then to impose our own expectations on that, on the outcome, and we say, yes, this these are the outcomes that I'm comfortable with, Lord, and everything outside of that outcome. I'm not comfortable with, and that doesn't quite fit into how I would like for things to be. This is how I want things to be. And then God does everything, right? He does it bigger, 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 and we're kind of blown away by it. So an example of this would be like, let's say a practical example. Let's say that you're at a point in your life where you're thinking about retiring. Let's just uh, uh, think of something here off the top of my head. We'll just use that example. Okay. All right. So the, the, the dream is, or to, or to have a certain job, or to uh, be able to serve the world in some amazing way. Okay, something like that, okay? So you've been praying, 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 Lord, I, I just feel so convicted that this is what I'm supposed to do with my life, and, and it's so different from where I am now, but as I look off into the future, I just feel so strongly that that's where uh, I would love to be. The question would be, in, in what way can I use my time now 
to prepare for the miracle that will happen in the future, not knowing exactly what that miracle would be. To me, that's what's being, that's what's being talked about here. Or even when it will happen. Or when it will happen. That in other words, you're not going to waste your time now sitting around waiting for the miracle to happen. And then when it does, I go, oh my gosh, I better change my life. Oh, I better get ready. Oh, I, yeah. it, it's more of using the time now in a, a pre- preparatory way for what it is that I believe is going to be the future that God has for me. Now, could it be that the future that I believe God has for me in retirement, or even if it is retirement, the future that I believe is the future that God is ultimately going to do? Could it be that there's a difference there? But I'm using my time to prepare And as I prepare, I'm also preparing for the possibility that it might be something different. In fact, it might be something so much better than I ever could have imagined. Does that make sense? It's like moving to Florida. (laughs) You use the time now to do what? To prepare for moving to Florida. To pack and all those things. To have extra Kleenex because it's so humid down there. (laughs) To take extra mosquito repellent with you. And other things that grow down there. It's just like that, okay? So it's sort of that idea, all right? Okay, so let's see what happens. We got uh, two minutes. It's very fast. So there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with some water. And they filled them up to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What's the point? I know we have all the notes, but what's the point? When God does something, he does it really well. So it was really good wine. This was bigger than anybody could have imagined. Even when Mary went to Jesus, she, ne- she would not have imagined. Nobody would have. Oh, they've run out of wine. Okay, go get the cheap stuff. Who's going to know the difference anyway? after six days, you know, right? And Jesus does it way better than they ever could have imagined. You will see greater things than this, right? And what's great, the definition of greater is more than your brain can comprehend. Retirement, so sweet, right? But that may not be what God has in mind, see? And that's the part, I think, that is being reshaped here. It sounds wonderful. And there's many aspects to whatever you've been praying for that you think will be the end all to end all. And Jesus is simply saying, I want you to realize that your eyes are going to be opened to maybe see things greater than you ever thought. And maybe it's going to be that they aren't greater than you thought, but you're going to think they are because your eyes are different now. Or maybe they actually are. Yeah, Don. I also like how um, he did this behind the scenes. Like, the majority probably didn't know that they did run out of wine. Yeah. And he just calmly, seamlessly just 
went about his business. He did. did it, and then the rest of the people, they never knew. They never knew. Quietly. Quietly. That's right. Now, some of the other signs that he did were way more uh, uh, out in the open. But this one, that's why I think this is somewhat part of the way that he went about training his disciples as well. Kind of starting out low key, you know, not a big splash. Later on, the big splash comes when he feeds 5,000 with just some kid's lunch, you know, and, and some blind guy from birth and now can see. I mean, that's a pretty big splash. But this stuff is like the little stuff. And so the challenge I want to end with, and then I'll get to the, your question, Sharon, is what small miraculous things are happening around you that maybe you didn't think of them as miracles because they were too little and they were too everyday kinds of stuff? And what would happen if you start to attribute even the little things to a miracle? Ooh. Yeah. Oh. Who was the master of the feast? The master of the feast would have been the big cheese in charge of all the arrangements, you know, where the, we, yeah, a wedding coordinator. Yes, perfect. That's a good example of that. Yes. And so, but that would be the person who would ultimately have to be the okay person on, on the wine coming in because, you know, it's kind of on him too if the wine co- co- turns out to be too bitter and people can't drink it. Okay. Yeah. One last, One last comment. You get the last word. We go back to Mary. Back to Mary. And, um, not only what we see, but what she has already seen, because she could make that do whatever he says. Uh-huh. They've had a lifetime together. We don't know. It's not told to us in Scripture. Right. But just that one line says she's already seen what he can do. That's right. She already has a relationship with him, and she has seen. So she trusts him uh-huh. from what she knows in the past yeah. going to the future. Mm-hmm. And that's our example, is that we've already seen God work in our life, mm-hmm. and we can trust him yes. as we go forward in into the future, wherever that may be. Wherever that, whatever part of the country that would be. And so uh, we're going to close today, and I want to say a special prayer for you guys. Okay? All right? So let's... Uh, what? We have a napkin. Okay, very good. Let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you remind us every day that there's not a single thing that happens in life that you don't already know about and that you're already working it out. You're way ahead of us. Lord, sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we, we get very wrapped up in, in what we can see and we, and we base our confidence and we base our sense of security in life on what we can see and we forget that what, what, with you, it's all about walking by faith, not by sight. So Lord, we all have dreams. We all have needs. We all have things that we look at in the future and we say, oh, I, just, I just know this is what God wants for me. And Lord, it may well be, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's greater than what we can see. So Lord, help us to trust in that. Help us to share the joy of that with each other and with those around us. Also want to pl- uh, pray a special prayer to your Lord for uh, Rod and Victoria Court who are uh, leaving us or heading off to, uh, to Florida and, and to be there with, the, with their family, with their kids or grandkids. And so we pray that you bless them in their journey and, and the getting there and all the stuff that goes with that. Um, let them know that they're uh, very much loved and, 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 uh, from us and, and we will miss them. But we know, Lord, that you have special plans for them. We know that they have much to offer Uh, wherever they are. So we pray that you be with them on their journey and uh, bless them. And who knows when, uh, uh, when we'll get to see each other again, this side of heaven. 
Watch over us, Lord, now as we go our separate ways until we're uh, together again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.